Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. We started with with Romans and looking at Phoebe as the letter bearer, uh, the one who Paul trusted to hand over the letter and uh, trusted, sorry, in handing over the letter to her, who, who then traveled to Rome and actually performed the contents to each of the churches. Uh, it was actually a really big deal for him to hand this over to a woman, uh, especially given the way that Paul's works and letters have been used, and, uh, and for her to have his full authority to speak on his behalf. So just like we read Romans and we ask a lot of questions, uh, a church would have heard the letter and would have asked a lot of questions. And Phoebe would have had the authority to answer those questions and provide the intent of what Paul was trying to say. Unfortunately, we don't have that to, to ask. And then we looked at Romans and the, and the Roman world and the divided space that the churches live in. Uh, so we have Gentile churches and Jewish churches, Jewish Christian churches. And there's a division among them. And as we read throughout the letter, we see Paul continually coming back to this division and saying divisions aren't supposed to be part of the church. Uh, We know that there is both an economic and an ethnic component to those divisions. And we looked at some of that last week. And one of the other things that we did is we looked at Romans as a fundraising letter. So Paul wants to write a letter to people he doesn't know to say, I need you to understand who I am and that I have the uh, authority and the audacity to come and preach to you, but also so that I can go on further and preach to people in Spain. We're going to get into the little bit of that today and what a problem that was, but he needs support to do those things. And so he writes and he says, this is who I am. This is who you need to be. And this is why I need your money. It has, it cast a different light. That's all. It casts a different light on things. And then finally, uh, we looked at the letter as primary, primarily a conversation about power and privilege, uh, which we don't typically think about when we read Romans. We think about, we think about salvation through grace by faith. And we think about works versus faith, and we have all these theological conversations about what, how salvation works. Uh, But at its root, Romans has a lot more depth than that theological conversation. And it was written to a specific people dealing with specific things at a specific time. And it helps us to understand some of that in order to dig it out. I'm going to begin with a quote. This is not biblical. A savior who put an end to war and will restore order everywhere. By his appearing has realized the hopes of our ancestors. Not only has he surpassed earlier benefactors of humanity, but no other will surpass him. 
that God's birthday was for the world, the beginning of the gospel that he brought. That's just to set the tone. I'm not going to tell you any more about it yet. Paul opens up his, his letter with a few things that we need to identify. When we're working in a Roman context, we have to understand some of the things that are going on in the world around them. Because we don't work in this language or this culture, we miss a lot of stuff going on. One of the key pieces of that is that Paul uses an immense amount of political language. And he starts off right at the beginning. So we talked a little bit about the hierarchical structure of society. If you are a uh, citizen, then you have special privileges. You have special honor and you have special power. You are likely more wealthy. You are likely, uh, you, you are able to prop yourself up and to talk about the honor that you have as a person of, uh, as a citizen. And on top of that, the system is very structured based on this honor and shame hierarchy. Uh, citizens are up here. Wealthy citizens are higher. Uh, powerful citizens are higher. Uh, at the very top, of course, is Caesar, the emperor of whom everything revolves around. As you might guess, once you get below citizen, things get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Uh, if you were a freed person, that is somebody that was, uh, that was a slave and has now been set free, you have slightly more status than someone who is a slave, but you will never have the kind of honor that comes with citizenship. You can have lots of money. You can have power. You can, you can come out of, of slavery and then go build your own business and brand and do whatever you want to do, but it doesn't matter because you can never gain the honor that comes with citizenship and in their system, their hierarchical system. All the way at the bottom, of course, is the slave who has no honor at all and often is spoken of as not even recognizing their own shame. They don't even get it. Uh, J.E. Linden put it this way. When a great aristocrat peered down into society beneath him, kind of like this stage and you guys... There was a threshold beneath which, to his mind, honor did not exist. Honor is everything. Honor did not exist below this threshold. There were a people, a great many people, without honor and best kept that way. This category of persons without honor in aristocratic eyes included those defined in the law as infamous Brothel keepers, actors, gladiators, convicted felons, persons whose conduct revealed that they had no sense of shame and thus could have no honor. The slave is the archetype of the man without honor. At the lowest of the lows is the slave. Paul begins 
his letter to a Roman or a, uh, to these Roman people by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how he starts his letter. If you want to suggest that you have authority and power and wisdom and honor, my guess is relating yourself to a slave doesn't really do that for you. But Paul begins his letter by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In this honor-shame structure, he has set himself at the bottom. This is step one of us identifying that Paul's letter is going to overturn the systems that are in place. The structure, the empire, the whole system of hierarchy and honor and shame and down to the slave is going to get turned upside down. And from line one, word two, Paul is starting that process. Second thing about this launching point for this letter. A slave of somebody sometimes came with some power. A slave of Caesar would come with the voice of Caesar. By starting his letter, a slave of Jesus Christ, he has both put himself at the bottom of society and identified somebody other than Caesar as the one in charge. Hyper-political, starts off strong, continues strong. Step two, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The word here probably is better translated as ambassador because we understand that a little bit better. An ambassador or somebody, again, like the slave of Caesar, would go and present themselves and speak on behalf of that person. But the person with authority here or the one with authority here is not the empire. It's not Caesar. It's not some person in the hierarchy of honor and shame. It's God. The system is being undone at its core. So we continue. We're going to skip down in a minute. What he does over the next few verses is something that uh, looks like a, f- a formula, like he's borrowed a formula to help identify him and to help them feel comfortable with what's coming next. So, you know, we might use a, an Apostles' Creed or something like that to say, oh, I'm one of you. I know this and I believe X, Y, and Z. Paul does a little bit of that. But here's what's going to come next. More politics. More structure about the top and the bottom. And when he gets to the essential piece of this, or the the thesis of his letter, he's going to begin overturning systems. So this morning, we're going to talk about this system of, of hierarchy. Let's read a bit more, shall we? Let's go to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness, that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. By God's will and your money, I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Just a tidbit of gushiness, mushiness. That verse 11 is the one that when my wife-to-be and I would write letters, that's the one we would tag at the bottom of that because we were, you know, super cool and whatever. Uh, For I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So what's interesting about this is that Paul is offering something very specific. He's offering a communal experience, not where he comes as an apostle to tell you what you're doing wrong and how you need to learn and grow and be better and be stronger. What he's offering is a piece of community to say, you know what I really long to do? is I long to be there so that we can encourage one another. Now remember that he's overturning systems, right? And he's writing to churches as we get, as we did in chapters 16 and 15. He's writing to churches that don't really get along and that think that they have privilege and power over each other. And he says, I long to see you, all of you, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have thus far have been prevented, in order that I might, may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now here's what's interesting. I want to share our faith among you. You encourage me, I encourage you, we do this thing together. But he goes immediately from there to say, actually, I'm obligated to you. I'm obligated to you, the Greek among you. I'm obligated to you, the barbarians among you. I'm obligated to you, the wise, and to the foolish. That back and forth, that mutual encouragement includes, or this refers back to, I long to see all of you, Greeks, barbarians, wise, and foolish. Barbarians and foolish have a particularly harsh understanding behind them. When we said... The slave is the archetype of the man without honor. It is to say also that the barbarian is the one without honor. And in fact, cannot gain honor. There is nothing that you can do. You can't get educated enough. You can't learn enough. And the barbarians in Spain, to whom Paul wants to go and preach specifically, are the ones that are constantly causing a ruckus constantly resisting the empire and consistently refusing to use the language or to, to, uh, to use 
Latin to name their towns or to name their, their rivers and their cities. This is all supposed to be part of what they're doing as they take their culture and their, their honor to these places. The barbarian is one that cannot handle that. The barbarian is less than a person and could never even gain that personhood in the eyes of this Roman system. Yet Paul has said, I am obligated, I am a debtor, I, am, I owe everything to these people, Greek, barbarian, wise, and fool. Foolish meant that they actually failed to be human. Uh, as one scholar writes, education created a higher type of man. You like that? A higher type of man and embodied the purpose of all human effort. The foolish lack this ability and cannot gain it. Sit at the bottom of the shame system without the ability to move upward. A person called foolish was therefore not just unwise, but in the final analysis, not fully human, another scholar writes. To be classified as as foolish in this social context is neither a deficit that can be overcome with more education nor a matter of what we would today refer to as intelligence because it pertains to the shameful being of outsiders. Since also the relationship to the divine was thought to be centered in knowledge, the foolish were viewed as profoundly impaired in their religious capacity. Are we hearing this? Social status, religious status, political status, everything that allows us to contribute to our community is cut off from this people. And Paul says, I am in debt to you. Do you know who people are supposed to be indebted to in this this culture? Try it. The powerful. Yeah, specifically the empire, Caesar. We owe everything to Caesar. And Paul says, actually, I'm indebted to the barbarian the one who has no power, no honor, no control, no privilege. I told you I was excited about Romans. This is exciting stuff. We still are in a culture, we may not call it honor and shame, but we we set ourselves apart based on our ability to contribute. How do we fit into the system? How many times have we heard about uh, somebody with low IQ from Trump? This is constant in our world and in our vocabulary and in our language. A person called foolish was therefore not just unwise, but in final analysis, not fully human. Yet Paul is saying to that person, I have been longing to see you so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is an upheaval of everything that we're supposed to know and do. And by the way, if you're competing with your, uh, whichever side of this story you're on, your Jewish Christian church on the other side of town or your, or your Gentile church on this side of town, if you're competing in that system, you've missed the mark because 
we are indebted to each other and serve in a system wholly other than this world of honor and shame. To include Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish as those he is indebted to, linking them to the mutually encouraged was an absolute anathema and an upheaval of the system. That's how Paul launches his letter to the Romans. And we thought this was just him and his niceties. All right, we get to the heart of everything. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We think Gentile is uh, politically incorrect, and so he's, he's taking this moment to acknowledge that, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And this is where we start our whole conversation most of the time. We start here and we go, Paul's talking about faith and being righteous, and it's not through works anymore, it's through faith, and we've got Calvin and Luther and then the Catholic Church, and obviously Paul is writing about 17th century theological debates. Obviously, that's what's going on, and so the whole thing is about this debate. But the reality is, yes, this is the thesis of Paul's letter, and yes, the whole thing from beginning to end is all about the gospel, but no, Paul's vision for the gospel and understanding of the way that life works in the vision of God is wholly different than we typically want to do because we read salvation only in terms of ourself. And Paul has just spent the lead up to this telling that it's not about me, it's about our community, it's about our relationships with one another, it's about communal worship and activity and salvation almost always is a reference to something much larger than the self. But we read it, thank you, our individualized theologies, we read it as the self. One more political note here. Slave of Jesus Christ is a political statement. Ambassador of the gospel is a political statement. The word gospel is also political. And the word salvation is also political. We have such zeroed in ideas and concepts that it's hard for us to even pull this stuff out. But Paul is, is just ratcheting off political term after political term. And if you're reading it within the scope and the oppressive nature of the empire, you cannot help but understand what's actually going on. The gospel is the good news. I think we did this the first week in our bit of conversation. The gospel is often translated as good news. The church wasn't the only ones using the word the gospel or the good news. When a political or, uh, or territorial battle was won, word would get sent back to the people or to, the, to uh, those in power. The gospel of the victory, the good news of the victory, would get sent back to those in charge, to Caesar. Gospel is, a, is the good news of victory in every context except when it's used in our Bible. That's the deal. 
when used by the church, it has this holy other uh, meaning that undoes what Caesar and the Roman system is claiming. Salvation, too, is also political. By the way, Jesus as Savior is also a political statement. Should we keep going? (laughs) We can't emphasize this enough in this culture. The imperial cult's purpose, so the the religion, the gods of uh, the Greco-Roman world, the purpose was to prop up imperial rule, to maintain the power and wealth of the elite. It celebrated the gospel of the divine power of the emperor. And Paul is writing about the gospel and the divine power of God that sees every person as having value in their own created self and in their own individuality, regardless of what the system says they're supposed to see. One writer in the time wrote this, a savior who put an end to war and will restore order everywhere. Caesar, by his appearing, has realized the hopes of our ancestors. Not only has he surpassed earlier benefactors of humanity, but no other will surpass him. The God's birthday was for the world the beginning of the gospel that he brought. You see what I did there? I tricked you. That was written about Caesar because Caesar is the one that came and gave security and safety because Caesar was the one that was supposed to give to humanity the gift of better life because Caesar was the one who was the savior Because Caesar was the one who was born a God and brought the gospel to the people. No? Anything? Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew and to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Everything that Paul is telling us is antithetical to the empire that sits around them, that props itself up and maintains power and wealth and authority and honor and shame. And Paul says, you know that gospel where the guy who was a criminal and died a criminal's death, that guy... I'm not ashamed of that, even though in this system, that should bring shame on all of us. You know that guy that we prop up and claim as our savior that has brought us political peace through war and violence? Well, that's not the kind of savior I know. The kind of savior I know sets us at peace and in harmony with one another the Jew and the Greek, the barbarian and the wise. Everything is upside down in this statement. 
the power of God for salvation to everyone. But Caesar was the one who brought everything into right order. Caesar was the one to bring righteousness. Caesar was the one that brought the value of faith. This is faith even is a huge value, the value maybe even of the Roman system. And Paul says, let's talk about faith for a second. Faith was so pleasing to the Roman gods that the empire literally was granted to the Romans because of their faith. Every moment of this thesis is about the gospel. And every moment of this thesis is about undoing an empire that is structured by those who have and those who have not. And Paul says, we don't function that way. God doesn't function that way. Is revealed through faith, for faith, is a reference to the community of churches. The vision for the gospel is for us to live in communal faith. And he's going to spend the rest of his letter digging in and expressing what it means for us to live in community under the gospel of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.